Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Benjamin M. Friedman. He is the William Joseph Mayer Professor of Political Economy and former chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University, where he taught for nearly half a century. His new book is Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Benjamin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. It is an honor to have you here. And Benjamin, before we dive into your book, I want to ask you, how are things going for you? Is your area of the country starting to emerge from COVID-19 or are you in an area that is still locked down? I think we're doing fairly well in Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, The vaccination rate is very high here, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people are pretty respectful about wearing masks indoors. Uh, You don't see, except in restaurants, you don't see much of that outdoors. If you walk up and down the street, there was a time when you did see people wearing masks, but that's gone. I think we're a bit apprehensive about what's going to happen when the weather turns cold and everybody's spending more time indoors. Mm -hmm. Here at Harvard this uh, semester, our classes are once again in person. Now, everybody has to wear a mask in the classroom, which Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I find a big bother. But if they tell us it's necessary, it is. Mm -hmm. But these we're now close enough to the end of the semester that I'm optimistic we'll get through it without anything serious going wrong and having to go back onto Zoom. We were on Zoom for classes all last year. And that was very inferior, to be honest with you. I, uh, mm-hmm. I felt sorry for the students, but I felt sorry for the firm, uh, me and my fellow faculty. Look, none of us asked for this, and we're all mm-hmm. doing the best we can, but we're glad to be back in the classroom this semester, and we're hoping that next semester we'll be able to be there without masks, but we'll find out. Mm-hmm. We sure will. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that answer. And let's now dive into your new book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, Uh, to echo a question that is in the introduction to your book. Why do so many people, especially Americans, often see any challenge to our market-centered conduct of economic affairs as a fundamental threat to our way of life? And can you give us some examples of what these challenges are? are or have been? Sure, I'll be glad to. Uh, The argument that's at the center of my book is that modern Western economics came not just out of the usual kind of enlightenment uh, forces that we often point to uh, Mm. back in the 18th century, but out of a, a period of turmoil and change in the religious beliefs of the English-speaking Protestant world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody knows about the influence of the Enlightenment, and so I didn't have to write about that. But the usual presumption is that because the Enlightenment was uh, mostly a movement away from uh, God-centered notions of the universe toward what in our modern vocabulary we would call secular humanism, Therefore, it followed that economics, which emerged right at this period in the work of people like Adam Smith and David Hume and those who followed them, was therefore nothing to do with religion. 
That's what I argue in the book is false. I think that Smith and Hume and their contemporaries were responding to, were shaped by very powerful trends created by new thinking in the English-speaking Protestant world, even though they weren't themselves, many of them, uh, religiously committed individuals. And so something about religion is at the heart of modern Western economics. Now, you asked uh, about why uh, Americans today take uh, any impingement or infringement of our uh, market-centered system as so fundamental, I think the answer is that at a deep fundamental level, everybody understands that it's not just about economics. Uh, people aren't explicitly aware of this underlying layer of religious influence. If they were, I wouldn't have needed to write the book. Mm -hmm. But it's there, and at some uh, level, uh, it affects people's consciousness. You asked for examples. Uh, why, for example, <clears throat> do attitudes on relief to the poor in America differ so much from those in Europe? Mm -hmm. And even among us Americans, why do attitudes on relief to the poor vary so much from one religious group to another, even within Protestantism. You have a big divide on what mainline Protestants think and what evangelical Protestants think. Where in the world does that come from? And I've pointed to attitudes toward uh, generosity through the government to the poor, but again and again, survey uh, opinion surveys indicate that what people think about things like the size of government and the level of taxes and uh, government regulation of business, all of these um, subjects uh, are ones toward which Americans have views that differ from people in other countries and on which uh, different religious groups in America have systematically different views. So I think these are examples of the way in which even here we are 200 odd years later, the religious influence is still at work. Right. And can you give us a few um pointed jumping off points for how our economic thinking is specifically rooted in religious thinking. I think, Jason, that the way to get at your question is to begin with the fundamental contribution that people like Adam Smith were making yeah. uh, 200 odd years ago. The great insight of Smith and his contemporaries uh, was that if economic activity is carried out in the right circumstances, and Smith's great insight was to realize that those circumstances meant competitive markets, mm -hmm. then even if you're just acting in your own self-interest without any uh, notion to my welfare, and I'm just acting in my own self-interest and everybody else is doing the same, nonetheless, when we pursue our self-interest in the economic sphere, to repeat under these uh, uh, circumstances or conditions of competitive markets, then even though we're not intending it, we will make other people better off. Mm -hmm. So just acting on our own self-interest, if the markets are competitive, we can make other people better off. Well, that was Adam Smith's great insight in the book called The Wealth of Nations, and it stands today at the very heart 
of modern Western economics. Now, where did that come from? Uh, I argue in the book that what enabled Smith to come to this insight was that he was living in a period in which people were moving away from belief in predestination. Uh, predestination implies that whether you or I or anybody else is saved in the afterlife or alternatively condemned to everlasting punishment is a decision that's made not only before we're born, uh, but before the world as a whole was even created. So there's absolutely nothing we can do to uh, affect whether we're saved or not. And this was the prevailing view in the English-speaking Protestant world, say, a hundred years before Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. But by the time he was doing his work, and others like David Hume, whom I mentioned, that world was moving away from predestination toward a much more uh, optimistic, a much more expansive view of the possibilities for human choice, human decisions, human agency. And the core argument I make in the book is that living in this world in which uh, now people were believing that individuals did have the ability to affect whether they were saved or not, Smith extended that idea to the secular realm and said, well, if you're able to affect by acting on your own initiative, whether you're saved, which is a pretty important thing, maybe by acting on your own initiative, you can affect other things too. Mm -hmm. Now, there are other dimensions to the argument as well, but the key point is that uh, the movement away from belief in predestination opened the way for a more benign, more optimistic view of the human character, what humans are capable of, to a more expansive view of what human choice and human action can deliver. And in effect, Smith and his contemporaries were secularizing these new and very contentious, at that time, religious beliefs. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we will return to some of these threads later. Uh, for now, friends, this is a good time to mention the Crook's Corner Book Prize, what Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Frazier calls the coolest book prize in the country. Awarded annually for the best debut novel set in the American South, the $5,000 prize is intended to encourage emerging writers, whether published by established publishing houses, small independent publishers, or self-published authors. This year's winner will be chosen by best-selling novelist and poet Ron Rash and will be announced in January 2022. For more information, visit www.crookscornerbookprize.com. All right, uh, back to your book. Um, I'm so I'm so glad you mentioned Charles Fraser. I thought okay. his I thought his Civil War novel was just wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, Cold Mountain. He um actually uh, the first event he did for that book was at our bookstore when we were in a previous location, and uh, he's from our state here, and we're glad to call him a North Carolinian. Well, um, lo lo lucky you. I've never met him, but I enjoyed the book enormously. Yes, sir. Um, I'm sure he will be happy to hear that. Well, um, back to religion and, and the rise of capitalism. Is belief in free markets, belief in capitalism, a form of religious thinking? 
I think it would be an exaggeration to say it's a form of religious thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, I know there are economists and there are plenty of critics of economics who make exactly that uh, argument. I think that I think that's too strong, uh, but I think there is a, a deep religious basis for it. There's a difference between saying something is a religious belief and saying something is uh, a belief I hold uh, in a way that's shaped by religion. The latter is what I mean here. Mm -hmm. um, I don't in any way want to argue that the people who gave us modern Western economics were religiously com committed individuals. They weren't. I mean, people like Adam Smith were international celebrities in their own day. We know a lot biographically about them. And mm -hmm. we know that Smith, or to repeat David Hume, was not, uh, neither one of them was a religiously committed person. Mm -hmm. But the point is that they lived at this time when religion was more central and more pervasive, more important, more multidimensional than anything we can observe in today's Western uh, society, either here or even more so in Europe, and therefore they could not have helped but be influenced by these religious controversies that were swirling all around them. The key concept that I draw on in the book is one that I took from Einstein, Mm -hmm. uh, not his relativity theory, of course, but uh, rather his view about how scientists and other people form their ideas. Einstein thought that because the world is so complicated, uh, anybody mm -hmm. who tries to analyze the world doesn't address the world as it is. Uh, people carry around in their mind a simplified image of the world. In Einstein's original German, it's the Bild der Welt, or sometimes translated as worldview. And so the question I asked was, where did Adam Smith's worldview come from? And I argued that even though he was not a religious uh, believer to any great extent, or certainly not in any committed way, uh, he, he, he was just continually exposed to these religious debates that were going on all around him. One of his close friends was the uh, head of the Church of Scotland. Other Church of Scotland ministers were uh, good friends of his. He had nice things to say about these people in the right there in the wealth of nations. And so, uh, you know, none of us lives in a bubble. Uh, we, we were influenced by what, what's going on all around, uh, all around us. I'm, uh, I'm of an age that I grew up during the Cold War, for example, and I bet if you probed my thinking uh, carefully enough, you would find ways in which uh, I must have been influenced in one way or another by the fact that this U.S. versus USSR uh, conflict in its many dimensions was uh, circling all around me as I was a child and coming into young adulthood. Well, similarly, Adam Smith was coming into young adulthood and forming his, to use Einstein's word, worldview right at the time when these, uh, the, these religious controversies were raging. And I think that's what gave him his uh, his ideas. Did that make it a religious belief for him? No, it didn't. 
any more so than I think I'm expounding religion when I stand up in my classroom at Harvard and talk about the theory of the firm or the inflation or unemployment or anything else. But I think at some level, his views and therefore the basic underpinnings of modern Western economics were uh, fundamentally shaped by this uh, by this aspect of the religious thinking of the time again the the more expansive view of human decision human agency and you know it's still with us jason if you were to sit in on a first year class in economics not just at my university but any place what do we do we start by talking about the decisions made by families and then we go on to talk about the decisions that we that are made by firms and then we put those together and talk about how that leads to prices moving and output moving well where does that come from i th- i think it comes in part from this uh, view of the importance uh, of human decision making and the possibilities for human decision making that came right out of this movement away from belief in predestination Hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, David Hume, who you've mentioned a few times, uh, referred to England's bishops as retainers to superstition. Yes, uh, can he you, did. <laughs> yes, he did. Absolutely. Can you explain for our listeners uh, what he meant here? Well, David Hume was an outspoken opponent of any kind of organized religion. It's very difficult to tell whether he was an atheist. At the very least, he was what we would call today an agnostic. What in that time they called a skeptic means the same thing. Uh, My reading of what Hume wrote suggests that he was actually an atheist, but not many people would agree with that. But for this reason, and it's not just that he made witty comments about Church of England bishops, uh, Hume was widely recognized as the most prominent thinker in the Scottish Enlightenment, even ahead of uh, Adam Smith. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, he was never in his lifetime able to get an appointment as a professor at a Scottish university. And it's not that he didn't try. He famously tried twice. And on at least one of those occasions, he put a lot of effort into it, but he never got himself appointed to be a professor. Uh, Why is that? It's because everybody understood that he was, again, either an agnostic or an, uh, an atheist. And the point goes right to what you and I were talking about immediately before. Uh, It would be absurd to think that Hume Hume, in his work in economics, was trying self-consciously to bring uh, these religious principles to bear. That's almost laughable. But yet, here we have this man who uh, wrote in ways that uh, emphasized the importance of individual decision-making and the way in which, under the right circumstances, um, self-interest-directed decisions and actions by individual people can make other people better off, the same theme as uh, Smith. And uh, where did it come from? I think it came from the fact that Smith, just like um, Hume, just like Smith, lived in this world in which people were talking about 
uh, religion. Uh, the, the same guy, William Robertson, who was the head of the Church of Scotland, who was a great friend of uh, Smith's, was a friend of Hume also. Uh, the uh, Robertson, the head of the church, uh, referred to Hume as a virtuous heathen. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. Heathen, but yet virtuous. Well, it says something. It says something about the the time, and says something about the man. But Hume is a very good example of this uh, this um, uh, influence of religious ideas, even on people who, in his case, were outspokenly not religious. Absolutely. Thank you so much, listeners. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Benjamin M. Friedman. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Benjamin M. Friedman, author of Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Ben, this um, is a big question. Well, you've already talked about David Hume. You've talked some about uh, Adam Smith um, and their influences on the bridge between religion and capitalism. What influence did Newtonian science have on the bridge between these two topics? Uh, Newtonian science was very important for the thinking of people at this era. Uh, just to start and for our listeners and get everybody on the same page with the chronology, Newton's great book, The Principia Mathematica, uh, was published in 1687. Uh, Adam Smith was born in 1723. Mm -hmm. By the time Smith was an undergraduate at the University of Glasgow in the 1730s, uh, Newton's book was part of the standard curriculum at every Scottish university and also at Cambridge University in England. Interestingly, it wasn't on the standard curriculum at Oxford, and maybe that's why Oxford lagged behind Cambridge for so long in scientific uh, endeavor. But in any case, uh, people like Hume and Smith were part of a generation, all of whom were trained uh, to think in Newtonian terms of universal laws, systematic explanations for phenomena, uh, mechanisms that made things happen. And I believe that when Smith set about to analyze the way the economy worked, he did so very much as a Newtonian. It wasn't that he was the first person ever to think of the idea 
that individuals acting on their own self-interest could somehow make other people better off. Mm -hmm. uh, there had been others in England who had had that idea before him, and there had been some in France. France is important for this purpose because Smith lived in France for two and a half years when he was just starting the Wealth of Nations pro project. But importantly, none of those precursors had any explanation whatsoever for how this result came about. They could say, well, if Jason acts in Jason's self-interest and Ben acts in Ben's self-interest, and uh, somehow it'll work out that they make each other better off. But then as to how that happened, nothing, absolutely nothing to say. And Smith's great contribution was to approach it as a Newtonian would and to uh, provide a systematic explanation with a mechanism to go with it, namely the mechanism of markets and competition and prices. And if you go back to the Wealth of Nations book, uh, with that in mind, it is just striking how Newtonian the language is in which Smith describes the way competition moves prices, prices move uh, markets uh, so that people either produce more of this or less of that. He could, if you look at the language, he could be describing forces that make planets circle around the sun without either falling in or flying out into space. But of course he isn't. He's talking about markets and prices moving economic uh, activity. And I think it was this Newtonian systematic explanation with a mechanism to it that made the wealth of nations such an instantaneous success. It wasn't just that Smith was educated in Newtonian thinking, his whole generation was. And as soon as people saw this explanation that satisfied a generation of Newtonians, that's when Smith became a celebrity. Uh, the book was an instantaneous success. Uh, he, uh, Smith lived 14 years after the book was published. The book was already, by the time he died, translated into five other languages. It had gone through six, seven print editions, something like that. And then it just took off uh, after he died in 1790. So I think he was writing as a Newtonian thinker for a generation of Newtonian thinkers, all of whom wanted to have a systematic explanation of this phenomenon uh, together with a mechanism that made it work. And that's what he provided. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, I now want to echo another uh, question that you ask in your book, which is why do so many Americans who have only the remotest prospect of ever making their way into the top income tax bracket, nonetheless favor keeping the top rate on top bracket incomes low? I think the basic answer, Jason, is that people have at the very bottom of their thinking, even in ways <clears throat> that they don't recognize, the idea that there is something empowering about unfettered markets, uh, something um, worthwhile, not just to the individual, but to the public at large, 
in allowing uh, individuals to or families to keep more of what they earn. And it's interesting, as I was observing earlier, to see how these ideas uh, are not only much more American than European, but they systematically depend on what religious denomination people belong to. Mm -hmm. So if I ask a question like, do you think uh, the tax rate on top bracket taxpayers should be higher or lower, I will get a significantly different answer depending upon whether people are uh, mainline Protestants or evangelical Protestants or not Protestants at all. Uh, and if similarly, if I ask whether uh, the estate tax should be abolished, uh, one of the fascinating things uh, that I found is that even though only something like one-fourth of one percent of American families are subject to the estate tax, nearly half of all Americans would like to abolish the, state the estate tax altogether, uh, not just uh, raise the exemption, which is already $22 million per family, uh, but uh, abolish the tax altogether. Well, where in the world does that come, come from, and why is it that evangelicals, who incidentally have lower incomes on average uh, than most other Americans, why is it that these evangelicals, with their lower than average incomes, would be more than average likely to want to get rid of the estate tax? Uh, I'm not saying this is the only explanation, but surely a part of the explanation has to do with this uh, religious origin of these ideas having to do with the movement away from predestinarian thinking going back a few hundred years ago. Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Um, you wrote a book a few years ago about economic policy under Ronald Reagan, and we've talked about Adam Smith and his philosophies regarding self-interest. How is uh, Reagan's trickle-down economics influenced by Adam Smith's economic philosophies? Oh, that's a very multidimensional question. So I'll see uh, how many elements of it I can uh, uh, capture. Uh, mm -hmm. First, uh, Reagan's policies were absolutely associated with uh, low taxes, mm -hmm. so low tax rates. And so that's uh, quite consistent uh, with a Smithian uh, idea. Uh, Reagan's uh, policies brought the tax rate on top bracket incomes down from, uh, I think it was 70% down to, I believe, 28. So that was a big uh, reduction. Mm -hmm. Second, however, uh, Reagan, and here's where the public uh, perception is not uh, very accurate, uh, Reagan did not wind up uh, favoring cutting uh, government spending. He talked often about cutting government spending, but when the chips were down, Reagan was not in favor of it. And indeed, uh, right in the very first week of his administration, going back to what, January of 1981, uh, Reagan identified seven areas of government spending that were not to be cut. And it turns out the, this included the big ones. So defense was not to be cut. Social Security was not to be cut. Medicare was not to be cut. Well, 
I've just listed the three biggest programs then and now that the federal government has. So once you take those three off the table, it's very difficult to make uh, a lot of progress. And besides, Reagan recognized that uh, road building benefits a lot of people. Reagan was in favor of the space program. I could go on and on. Mm -hmm. So there were aspects of the Reagan program that were consistent uh, with Smithian thinking. There were aspects uh, that were not. What that book uh, was about, I think I wrote the book in the late 80s when Reagan was still president, what that book was about was the harmful effect of large government deficits, even when the economy was at full uh, employment. If you put together a combination of low taxes and a policy of high spending, Nobody can be surprised if the government runs a big deficit and has to borrow a lot of money. And at the beginning of the Reagan administration, remember, he came in when the economy was severely un underemployed. There was a big recession on at the time. At the beginning of the administration, that was a good policy to have because that helped stimulate the economy back toward uh, full employment. But by the time we got to maybe 84, 85, something in the middle of the decade, the economy was back to full employment and we didn't need the stimulus from the government uh, uh, deficit uh, spending. And that's the point at which I argued that the uh, continuing deficit spending was uh, harmful for the economy and that we ought either to raise taxes or to reduce uh, spending or some combination of both in order to get rid of the deficit. Now, interestingly, after Reagan was, um, after Reagan left office, then under first uh, President Bush and then under Clinton, and then even more so after the Republican majority uh, came in in Congress in 90, 1995, uh, that's exactly what we did. I'm not claiming credit. If somebody wants to think my uh, what I wrote uh, was helpful in making that happen, that, that's great, but I'm not claiming credit. But I think a very favorable uh, sequence of events was that, and it was bipartisan. It was some uh, under Bush, some under Clinton, some under the uh, Republican uh, majority. Taxes went up, spending went down. And as a result, by the end of the 1990s, uh, we had a, a balanced federal budget, which I thought was a good thing. And I would hope that we could get back there someday. I think it's a great pity that here we are 20 years later. And instead of being balanced, which it was in the year, say, 1999, 2000, we're back to having enormous deficits. I think that's a shame. Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Um, I would next like to ask you to comment on the influence of premillennialism on the current economic thinking of the common American. Uh, first, to make sure our um, <clears throat> our listeners uh, understand the vocabulary, because this one is tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, for people who believe in the millennium, the thousand years of uh, bliss uh, foretold at the, in the latter chapters of the book of Revelation, there are two versions of this that have competed with each other right from the beginning. The one you mentioned is called pre-millennialism, mm -hmm. meaning that the world as we know it will end before the millennium occurs. 
so that uh, whatever people are around to enjoy that uh, thousand years of bliss, they're not going to be people like us. Mm -hmm. uh, by contrast, the opposing view is post-millennialism, meaning that the world as we know it will not uh, come to an end until after this thousand years of bliss. Uh, and so uh, this better world to come that's foretold in the Bible uh, will uh, be enjoyed by people such as ourselves. Now, this uh, view that people such as ourselves either will or will not uh, and be around to enjoy this uh, better world mm -hmm. turns out to be profoundly important. And it's a quite separate strand of the book from what we were just discussing, but it's an important one that I go into. Uh, the, the religious groups in America who have been primarily associated with pre-millennialism that is thinking that the world will end before uh, it gets better, have usually been opposed to uh, societal reforms. Mm -hmm. um, and it's tricky here because they were, those groups were typically in favor of abolishing slavery. They were in favor of the anti-alcohol movement, temperance, so you have to be very careful, but they would typically be opposed to any kind of secular reforms. Getting rid of slavery was worthwhile on its own moral terms, same for drunkenness, but they would oppose, they've historically been opposed to uh, social reform movements that did not have a specifically moral content. And as uh, one of the great premillennialists, Dwight Moody, people may have heard of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, it's the same person, mm -hmm. uh, as Dwight Moody said, what we need to do is not reform society, but to save souls, wanted to save individual souls to prepare for the uh, second coming. Now, by contrast, post-millennialists, uh, and there's a strong tradition of this in America, going back to people like Jonathan Edwards, and some of the late uh, Puritans, post-millennialists, not only were in favor of social reform movements, they thought that there was a religious value to social reform movements. And the thinking was that the sooner we make the world a better place, the sooner we arrive at the millennium, and for committed Christians, the sooner the millennium comes, then the sooner the millennium ends, and the sooner the millennium ends, that means the second coming occurs. So uh, the key implication for American social, including economic policies, has to do with this question of whether uh, on the one side, uh, there's not much value to be placed on uh, social reform movements and attempts, especially by the government, to make the world's better, uh, or whether such attempts are not only worthwhile, but worthwhile even in religious uh, terms. And I mentioned just now attempts by the government, but this applied to attempts by the churches as well. There was something in America that I wrote about in the book called the Social Gospel Movement, starting in the latter half of the 19th century and running up really to the 1930s, in which uh, people argued that the 
countries' churches should play a leading role in trying to bring about social reform movements. Now, to repeat, there had been some uh, effort along this line, but uh, typically about things like slavery and temperance. But they wanted them. They wanted anti-poverty programs to be led by the churches. They wanted uh, education movements to be led by the churches. Uh, and so, in all sorts of ways, this debate between uh, people who thought the world could be improved and people who thought. Uh, no, uh, you can't really do that. Uh, was very important, and it turns out to be it turns out to be present today. Although talking about today is tricky, because figuring out who's a premillennialist and who's not uh, is very difficult. To a first approximation, uh, if somebody says that he or she is an evangelical and self-identifies as an evangelical, that's a good sign that the person is likely to be a pre-millennialist, but I sure wouldn't want to bet on any give, given individual. Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. Um, on this show lately, we have had a few economists, folks who write about economics, and I've asked uh, each person a form of this question, and I like to tie uh, these episodes together as much as I can. Um, so I will ask you, Ben, do you think the current world monetary and banking systems are going to lose anything to decentralized cryptocurrencies? I think there's a real risk of what you're saying, uh, Jason. I mm -hmm. think um, the cryptocurrency movement I find very worrisome. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we've now, when, when things like Bitcoin were introduced, uh, people originally had the idea that this was going to be an alternative form of ordinary payment. Mm -hmm. Well, we've learned that that's not so because uh, um, uh, Bitcoins vary wildly in, uh, in, uh, in value. There's a reason you don't go to the grocery store and offer to buy your groceries with a tiny share of General Motors stock. Makes no sense. And the same thing is true for Bitcoin. Now, or uh, many of these other cryptocurrencies. So why are these things there? Uh, I think in part they're there for uh, enabling uh, criminal activity, and this is very dangerous. We've uh, had uh, we've had uh, lots of evidence uh, of episodes of uh, hackers uh, putting ransomware or malware on. Uh, people's uh, computers. Uh, uh, the first one, I, the first wake up for me was an episode that you may remember. There was a hospital in San Francisco that had a ransomware attack. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were told that if they didn't pay some millions of dollars, uh, the hospital's computer system would be shut down, even with people uh, you know, on the operating table and all that. And they paid the, they paid the ransom. And I found this very curious uh, personal aspect of this. My first job ever was working in the payments part, uh, division of a bank. Hmm. And so I, I, I learned a little bit about how you make payments. And I kept trying to figure out how did they get away with this? How did they, uh, how did they receive payment of the ransom 
without it being able to be traced uh, by the authorities. And after I tried to tried for quite a while to figure this out, I couldn't do it. So I called one of my friends at the Federal Reserve and I said, you come, tell me how this is done. And he said, oh, it's simple. They use Bitcoin. Mm. Well, that was a wake up call for me. So I think there's all sorts of bad stuff potentially happening in the world. And I think these cryptocurrencies are using it. Now, there is a form of cryptocurrency called stable coin mm. in which supposedly and I emphasize supposedly, uh, each dollar of stable coin is backed by the issuers holding a dollar in a bank account. Hmm. Well, if that's really true, then I don't see what the advantage is of using the stable coin. Does it again, doesn't really make any difference. So I think there is a, a danger. I think it's a danger to the banking system. Uh, I hope the world's central banks and other regulators get their arms around this uh, before uh, too long, because I think the risk, and you put it in terms of a risk to the banking system. Well, yes, it's that, but I think the risk is much broader. I think the risk has to do with people engaging in all sorts of activity that is uh, illegal on its face, uh, mm -hmm. tax evasion, of course. So I think it's a very worrisome development. Absolutely, Ben. And um, just as um, spinning off of your answer, I believe the stable coins primary function is to be used um, by day traders to flip in and out of these other coins without uh, a potentially taxable event happening um but well, so if it's just tax evasion that's fine but then mm -hmm. again if the, if the stable coins are merely a support mechanism for mm -hmm. the the crypto mm -hmm. uh stuff well then you have to ask why is the crypto stuff there yeah like, like saying here's something that hasn't here's here, here here's item a that has no purpose other than to support item b mm. well that immediately leads you to say okay fine i'll play the game now tell me why item b is there yes <laughs> absolutely well thank you ben and finally uh and listeners we could talk about this fascinating book forever there's a lot of ground to cover here and if this conversation has piqued your interest please order a copy of Religion and the Rise of Capitalism from QuailRidgeBooks.com with free shipping. Um, but Ben, to bring us full circle, we've talked uh, about David Hume, um, Adam Smith, Newton, uh, these other men. Why uh, are we still talking about the impression that these men lent uh, to this field of economics into capitalism in 2021? I think, Jason, the reason is that origins matter. Uh, ideas uh, come uh, down through the ages, mm -hmm. and uh, economics is certainly not the only um, field in which the early contributors are uh, still important today. You know, if we were talking about physics, it would surprise nobody that we talked, well, we already mentioned Newton, but it would surprise nobody that we talked would talk about uh, uh, Galileo and Kepler and people like that. If we were talking about philosophy, nobody would be surprised to talk about, hear about Aristotle and Plato. Uh, if we were talking about art, nobody would be surprised to hear about Leonardo da Vinci and Giotto and Rembrandt. 
uh, people have influence that last down through uh, the ages. They help shape things. And part of uh, the burden that I take on in my book is to show, I mean, we've talked about a lot about the part about where economics came from 250 years ago, but then uh, the book doesn't suddenly end when Adam Smith died in uh, 1790. There's a lot of the book left, and what it does is trace these ideas down through the, down through the centuries since then and show that right through the 19th and the 20th century and on to the present day, this from the bottom up influence of the religious ideas on the economic thinking uh, persisted. Now, it changed because, of course, over time, the, econom the economy uh, changed, you know, uh, 250 years ago. Uh, the American economy was uh, largely agrarian. Uh, today, it's uh, largely not just industrial, but post-industrial. So the economy has changed, and therefore the questions that economists ask and try to answer have changed too. But right through all of this period, uh, what I try to show in the book is that this underlying influence of the religious thinking has kept right on going, and I think in various ways that are still visible in these debates over economic policy that you were asking about, I think it's still there today, and I think we're better off if we recognize that it's there rather than be ignorant about it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ben, and thank you for writing this fascinating book and for all of the other work that you do. Listeners, I've been speaking with Benjamin M. Friedman, author of Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jason. I enjoyed being with you. Once again, I would like to thank Benjamin M. Friedman for joining me. Copies of Religion and the Rise of Capitalism can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.